Welcome to Imagining France, a series of podcasts bringing you into the world of the National Gallery's summer exhibition, Roderick O'Connor and the Moderns between Paris and Pontevin. For this episode, Andrea Horan, co-founder of the Tropical Popical Nail Salon, and fashion writer and critic Paul McLaughlin discuss their personal responses to the exhibition from their unique perspectives within the contemporary world of fashion and media. Hi, my name is Paul McLaughlin. Um, I'm a fashion critic and freelance writer, uh, contributing to publications such as the New York Times, Fashionista.com and Twin. Um, today I'm with Andrea Horan discussing Roger O'Connor and the Moderns, the latest exhibition at the National Gallery of Ireland. Uh, hi Andrea. Hi, how's it going? I'm Andrea. Um, I am the owner of Tropical Popical, the nail bar, uh, which I think is gas that we're sitting here, fashion critic and nail bar owner. Um, but we do bits with the National Gallery doing artistic uh, interpretations and reactions to the exhibitions as they open. So that's kind of a reason why we're here. And what was your initial reaction to the exhibition? Um, to the exhibition, I was joyous that it was full of colour because I find a lot of the time um, classical art is very subdued and dark and I think that there's statements made with the darkness rather than the light. Um, I found that this was very pattern heavy, light, um, a lot of colour and it was blasts of colours um, and even the interpretation and I suppose it's probably from because of where they painted a lot of the work it was in the countryside so mm -hmm. it, it doesn't have the kind of city darkness on it so it, it, it lends itself to being more colourful and to having more natural colours coming through and especially in all the landscapes and all that they really went for and especially in the later work as you kind of went through it the when they started not taking things for what they were and to maybe challenge that it didn't have to be an exact replication, it was their interpretation of it, um, so that the colours are not what they look like in real life. So you've got pink mountains or whatever. And there are some pink mountains, but not very often. Yeah, I think <laughs> a lot of the, the inspiration behind what they painted was inspired by these really intense colours that uh, Paul Gauguin would have he was, I suppose, the, he started the movement in Honolulu. He's the leader. <laughs> I think he's the leader, but you can see even that his work is inspired by other people. So he's, I suppose, leading from what he knows as opposed to starting something that's incredibly new and exciting. Yeah, yeah. Although it, it was a development, I don't think he necessarily was a revolutionary in terms of his, his uh, leadership. We also have like Cezanne as well, yes. who was very influential in that. But like I suppose, all of the work is so similar. And like I'll put my hands up and say I'd never heard of Roderick O'Connor. <gasps> Gasps, sharp intake of breath. But I had heard of obviously Van Gogh. So when you then look at the work that they were doing, which was really similar, that the kind of linear, soft brush, brush strokes and everything that was coming through on it, it's it kind of, you can see them learning from each other and the Point of Anne ga gang clearly were, like, and we were talking about this earlier, how you could tell that they were friendly with each other and they weren't competitive. Whereas mm -hmm. when you look back at the Vermeer stuff, um, the exhibition that was on, there was the similarities between each piece of work, but they were, you could tell that they were taking a piece, copying it and trying to better it. Whereas I think with this exhibition, there's a friendliness almost, well, we, I, I'm projecting friendliness. 
I sense for their pals um, and that they're taking the learnings from each other and the techniques are very similar um, and I suppose if it was modern day worlds now you'd have Daya Prada jumping in going oh my god they're all copying each other or whatever whereas it seems to be that's how the art progressed and they learned and whatever. Yeah I, de I definitely think that was something that I also found really interesting like the cross-pollination of ideas between O'Connor and Kuno Amiot and Van Gogh and Paul Gauguin and but I think like you said Daya Prada would not appreciate the exhibition. <laughs> oh they my would God. <laughs> go to town on all the different references and who is copying who. But um, when I came to the exhibition, Rosary Cox gave a great tour and she said, um, there's only one original, whoever created the world, the rest are just copyists. And I think that's really true. But as she pointed out, what's unique to O'Connor is his animated handling, his heightened color and his simplified form, which I think even if you look at the other, the other art, artists in the exhibition, you can see that he still has his own style, even if he is inspired by yeah, the others. Yeah, yeah. Like you can go through the exhibition and I think if you, even if you aren't familiar with O'Connor, like you weren't and I wasn't familiar with him either, you can Do you see, feel bad saying that? I always feel bad. I'm like, oh God. I mean, I think it's good because <laughs> there'll be a lot of people who won't know yeah, yeah, Roderick yeah. O'Connor and then they'll come to the exhibition and they'll be enlightened as to who he is. Yeah. And I think that's really important that, like that, exhibitions and just galleries can introduce the public to new artists, yeah, yeah. even if he is from the eighteen hundreds and they haven't heard of him. I think it's good. It's yeah, yeah. a form of education. But um, yeah, with O'Connor, I, I was really interested in what was unique to him, and I think even through the first room and the second room, if you see the works that he's made, and then you go to the third and the fourth and the fifth you can start to recognise which ones belong to him yeah. based on animated handling. The now, when you say animated concept. handling, what do you mean by that? When I, what I mean by that is like the way that he used stripes and there's, no, there's not really many lines in his work. And it's very, um, I suppose, he paints really kind of intensely from memory and there's no, it's not academic, I guess. It's not... This way, is like, how art is made. It yes. was more a it was, feeling. It was freestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, yeah, what he was feeling, and it was almost like his feelings and his emotions were just exploding onto the canvas. And we were saying that they all felt like a bit, they were quite hippies, really, weren't they? Like the group of them in the countryside. Yeah, I mean, in Ponaven, they would have been quite spiritual, and the painting style of synthetism and symbolism would have been very much inspired by the kind of, I suppose, outward appearance of natural forms and as opposed to looking at something, sitting there with their canvas and their easel and painting from what they can see, it's more inspired by memory. And I think that's really interesting because then you get, I suppose, a looser painting, but you also see something that's very personal to them, as opposed to, we can all look out the window like, and decide what we see and we'll all see the same thing. Do well, we though? But, do, <laughs> do we? but we all remember it differently. Yeah, 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 and that's what makes the richness. And I think that's what makes it so rich and yeah. really interesting. And I think it was Paul Gauguin who said, a canvas was a flat surface onto which colour was applied. And I think that informs a lot of the colour in the exhibition. You can see that it is so vibrant. Like you were saying, the pink mountains. Mountains are in pink. So apart from that one in Bolivia or somewhere. <laughs> apart from that one. Um, but yeah, I thought that was really interesting, like painting from memory, and we all remember things very differently. 
yeah, and I what I loved as well as you can see that there was like at the start the colours were again very like this is a peasant and this is what they look like. But then as it goes on, then this peasant has blue and orange stripes on her face, and you're like that's an interesting way of shading and bringing the light to her face. When it is bringing the light to her face, but it is in a way that's like completely unnatural almost, but mm -hmm. yet it still pops. And we were also talking about the way that those stripes are working. And there's a street artist called Aches who does a lot mm -hmm. with RGB and kind of make, it's almost like a, it brings it alive and pops it. And I was like, it's the reference, you can see the reference there and it's not, he didn't get the reference from there, but you can see that it's been used for a long time. And when you see the modern take on it, of how it doesn't have to be the real life, real spice look. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, I suppose, a revolt against impressionism and against post-impressionism because they got quite fed up with that, I think. And it's why they went to Ponavent because Paris at the time was, it was, there was a lot of scandal and political instability at the time. So they all went to Ponavent to have a great time, I suppose. <laughs> Drinking their cider in the fields. Drinking their cider in the fields. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it was different. They moved to Ponavent, which is... And I read something about them, and this is why I think I love them as well, because and why we're deciding they're hippies, because they were sick of the commercialization yes. and of the all that kind of jazz and moving back to a more simple life of joy and nature and painting mm -hmm. and cider. And cider. <laughs> and cider. <laughs> the most important part of their life. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it was really interesting that they chose Ponavent because it was much cheaper than Paris, which was where the centre of the international art scene would have been. And then... I think it's also random that an Irish guy from Roscommon is ending up bopping around Ponavent. Yeah, it's, it's strange to think that he made it that far, and he was one of the only Irish artists to stay in France. He really detached from Ireland. Cheek of him. The Rude. Cheek of him. How dare he? Rude, Roderick. <laughs> um, but he would have been surrounded by people like Kuno Amy if it's, and... Uh, he was my favourite out of the exhibition. But the evolution of the Ponavent School of Art like, what did you think about the development, I suppose, of their collaboration and the way that they interpreted each other's work? I like, I think it's cute. <laughs> Is that an art? That's not an art word. I think it's cute because you can t tell that they're pals. And like when I then went back and read a bit more the relationship that Roderick had with my pal, you could see that there was a, a budding friendship and that it was, they were learning and creating together and moving things forward for each other as opposed to trying to um, better each other. I and they're obviously trying to get better or, and to improve and move things along. But I, I think I, I enjoyed the journey of, and I suppose the more color that happened and the more they became braver with the colors was more my buzz and uh, it's, it's nature that, uh, not nature, but I prefer colour, so that's mm -hmm. how I'm going to see it. And we were talking about the um, etches and sketches of the black and white pieces, and neither of us were 
enamored, 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 and <laughs> um, with those. So I think that's kind of interesting from where we're both coming from in a world of color. You're from fashion, and I'm from nails. That's literally colored, filled. Mm -hmm. That these pieces are the pieces that weren't the pieces that stood out. Yeah, I, I personally wasn't drawn to them, and I think it was because you were surrounded by the amazing purple walls in the exhibition, and then you have all these really vibrant pieces of art, and then you come to these black and white landscapes, and it's it's almost like disappointing, I suppose, in the context of the rest of the exhibition to see. I suppose it, it does give something more varied, and it does show the different, like the scope of his yeah. style, but I think in terms of the rest of the We're work, sweating for colour. Exactly. <laughs> We're sweating for colour. <laughs> it just felt, it, it felt flat for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you felt the same. And I think the ones that had, like Landscape Ponavent by Roger Connor was one of my favourite pieces in the exhibition, and there was just, it really was an explosion of colour. Yeah, it's like one of those things, what is that thing that you look into and turn around a stylograph or whatever, cut that bit out. <laughs> what are they called? <laughs> kaleidoscope. It was like a kaleidoscope of colour. What piece sticks out as your favourite? My favourite was the Amiette uh, Bunch of Flowers, um, that it's not called that, um, but it just is a very evident, stunning um, I kept going back to it and I've been to the exhibition a couple of times now and I kept ending up back at that and even when we were doing the interpretation for nails we kind of found five themes when we were, came out of the exhibition that would work for nails and florals was a very good one and obviously the texture and the lines in that work really well in nails but we did also like a lot because everything's so textured so one of our themes was texture, florals Apples, apples, they're everywhere. Like literally, all I saw for the whole exhibition was apples and stunning apples, in yeah, fairness, especially with the uh, colors that went in and the lines and especially when it went past the like literal interpretation I thought was stunning. Um, and then what was the last theme we did? Oh, the peasants. So we did a peasant one as well. So there was a lot of peasant women. And you were saying that um, my pal had to go back to Switzerland because he couldn't afford to pay his models. Yeah. That every, like they paid the models in Ponavan, which was interesting, I suppose, that they were actually treating them fairly. Because um, models are not treated fairly in this. They're not treated fairly, as we well know. Um, but you can see that they really appreciated the subject. Like I remember, like if you look at some of O'Connor's work, um, which was more my interest as opposed to your pal. Um, <laughs> You can, yeah. you can My pal. <laughs> yes, your pal Kuno Emilich from the 1890s. Um, I think we would have got on. I think you would have. Yeah. He seems like a sound guy. <laughs> um, if you take some of O'Connor's work, you can see that he really respects his subjects in that he gives them a clear identity. It's even though it is an interesting interpretation the way he uses colour and texture, you can see that he does respect them. And even though the paintings are called Breton Woman or Breton Girl, that he is... They don't even get a name. They don't even get a name. <laughs> Breton Girl won. But you can see that he does respect his subjects. Um, I think, anyway. Why do you think that? I think that because even though it is a loose painting, you can see that there is character there and you can get a sense of the person that he's painting. And I think 
that is a form of quiet respect, respect I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And would there, do you think that there's a lot of artists who didn't have that respect? I don't think uh, Paul Gauguin did. I think <laughs> we discussed <laughs> him and not the greatest person either. Um, from accounts. Yeah, well, I didn't know anything about him. I just could t I just looked at the piece that uh, the big huge piece where they're at the table and the yeah. the thing that jumped out at me first is that all the men are dressed and all the women are naked. Like yeah. and for me it was just the disparity between the two of and then the hipster guy sitting in the middle, he looks like something out of vice or something leading the table um, but then all the women just raped over naked and for, I instantly was turned off the piece because of that and uh, maybe that's from where I'm coming from as a woman and work I've done in the past but and I just was like oh, he's a bit of a pig isn't he and then you tell me the story I told you the story about how he used he was he was very I suppose he sexualized his subjects as we've seen and as you just discussed but he used to send these really graphic letters to O'Connor, which couldn't be published because, well, the nature of them, no one wanted to be reading those. And I'm so intrigued by them now. <laughs> I'm sweating for them. <laughs> um, but they couldn't publish them because they were just too graphic for any audience to come across. So it's clear that his character definitely influenced the way he painted. And I think because and you, and I, can, you can totally feel that off the work then as well I and i think in a modern context it, like we're in really we're in the me too harvey yeah. weinstein world and with a lot of the fashion photographers that were recently it, it was uncovered mm -hmm. about allegations against them and i think you can for me when i looked at paul gauguin's work I, it kind of reminded me of the way that bruce weber sexualizes men in his work and then when allegations came out against him it was it almost was like the work was giving it was us a always telling us yeah. no one was listening I suppose Terry Richardson Terry Richardson is another one yeah like these people's the, the people's work definitely is giving us clues is giving us clues what, as to what they like yeah and what kind of person they are and how they treat people and what their beliefs are and all that kind of jazz so what we can take from that is from that big picture we're not into his personality. No. <laughs> However, it's, a nice, it's, a, it's an interesting piece. that O'Connor was doing was much more respectful. Yeah. And he was seemingly about a nicer person. Um, although some people have said that he was quite a grump. Um, but... Being grumpy doesn't make you not a nice person. But you can kind... I think there's a kindness in him from... No, it's obviously his self-portrait. So I don't know if he painted himself to be sounder than he is. But he <laughs> looks like a gentleman who has soft kindness in his eyes. Do you think he just did that, like in a selfie world now where you can control your selfies, how, did he control his, how he projected himself with his self-portrait? I suppose it maybe comes back to how he looked at himself. Yeah. And yeah, 
I think that's interesting actually the way that people view themselves, how has that changed? Um, it's like what you see your profile picture on Facebook versus a picture you're tagged in on Facebook. It's appearance like, versus reality. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> but how, you're pre- how you think you present yourself and then how you're seen is completely different. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting when you look at um, portraits from historical pl- pieces like that, that to try and get a sense of is that the real him or is that who he wants to portray. But I think that is that kind of idea of what are they portraying and what sense do they want to give comes back to what we talked about at the start with the way that they collaborated. Mm-hmm. It, was it appropriation or appreciation? And that's something that I ask myself a lot even with fashion. Yeah. Like, are these artists respecting the work of others or are they stealing? Yeah, and well, I think that brings us into a huge uh, conversation about appropriation in general that mm-hmm. I think is happening in society and I think there's a huge conversation and I think every single thing that happens in the world is appropriation and that's how culture and art evolve and if we try and control that and not let ideas spread then we're living in a world that is very closed and very uh, closed off to ideas and you and you become very focused on what's your right rather than what is taking and borrowing from other people to make things grow and and to feel more rounded. I think that goes from straight through from fashion to art to politics. And even if you look at the way politics is going now, there's no appropriation happening in left versus right. And if there was more appropriation happening, we'd have a much rounder political system. So I think there's a role for appropriation in art, fashion, politics and life, I believe. Once you're not doing it in a way that's like you're like if we take like the Indian headdress where a company is commercializing that like to, ma- to make money versus and not respecting it, that's a whole different ballgame. Whereas if you're taking elements of like something to bring it, move it on, I think I think that has to be part of life. Like that's like saying yeah. you can never use red again. Yeah. Because you're appropriating red. Do you know that way? And I'm, that, that boils it down to a very simplistic view of things. But that's like saying, well, Prado did a red shoe before. Nobody can ever do a red shoe again. Do you know that way? And, or like a red sole, a Louboutin, whatever. Do you know that yeah. way? But like, then you can't have ownership of red. You don't own red. I think Christian Louboutin owns red. He, red does, he doesn't <laughs> own it. He did it. But that doesn't mean that someone else can't do a red sole with polka dots on it. Yeah, I understand, and it's, it definitely leaves you, I think, in, in two minds, and I think that's what I liked about the exhibition. It made me really think whether, when I looked at the pieces, were they from inspiration or were they because there was a lack of ideas? And that was something that I really found interesting with that. Yeah, yeah, I never even thought about it like that. And like you said, it would be very limited to think, you can never do a red shoe again, yeah. it's been done. But with these guys, you know, are we being pick and choose? Like, are we, we can, can we pick and choose? Like these people, okay, they were friends and they collaborated and they were inspired by each other, but does that mean that people who aren't friends and that don't collaborate can't be inspired by each other? Are we just picking these people because they're in a major yeah. exhibition and we feel like we have to respect them and the way they worked or? I respect the way everyone works, unless they're dicks. 
Uh, like Paul Gogart. <laughs> like Paul Gogart. Uh, so I think I like the fact that they're friends, but at the same time, I don't think that that, lit- that le- necessarily leads to the fact that if someone's doing it who aren't friends, that like the Vermeer pieces and the Dutch um, artists who were trying to outdo each other, mm-hmm. they still created different pieces of work that each had something more and that people were learning from and that was bringing people forward and challenging people. So I think there's a role to be played for sure. I think with this, they're all in a certain area, hanging out with each other. Drinking cider. Drinking cider. Uh, We're projecting that, by the way, Uh, (laughs) obviously. But I think it's interesting that, of course, there's going to be similarities because if if you hang around with the same five people, all the time you start to dress like them, you start to talk like them, you start to take on their characteristics. And I think the same is for art, personally, as an art expert. (laughs) (laughs) Or a resident art critic. (laughs) Resident art critic, yep. That's interesting what you said about the Vermeer exhibition and how the artists were competitive. And I think competition makes work better, personally. I I think if- A hundred percent agree. Yeah, I think- if you're not challenged, then you're just going to float along doing what you do. And until someone comes in to step things up, that challenges you to step things up. And I think that's why, again, appropriation is a good thing in my mind, if it's respectful. Um, but it, it is, it's about growth and it's about moving things forward and challenging things so that they can change as opposed to leaving it as it is. Do you think that the artists in this exhibition got too comfortable? Oh God, um, no I don't because I think they, when they started using the colours that don't represent what is reality, I think you can, that's a big jump and I think it was something that, hadn't, that was happening around the time. So I think that is something that wasn't accepted maybe in the 1800s, am I projecting that again? Uh, but I think they were definitely trying to push their boundaries for sure. Mm-hmm. and enjoying themselves and at the end of the day art the whole point of art is to create something that people love that you enjoy making I think so if they were enjoying themselves then I don't think they were comfortable I think they were trucking along with joy interesting because <laughs> I think that if if the landscape like with the Dutch artists was more competitive then maybe the art that's produced is more worthwhile because they were constantly pushing themselves as opposed to looking around them and absorbing absorbing but if you look at the dutch artists up in a line they're not that different like obviously they're different but they're they're honing their skills whereas i think there's a lot of difference in what was created in punta Ven, for sure and they had similar styles yeah with the soft um linear style but i think there was definitely enough difference for it to challenge, not even challenge, but for me to have a feeling of there being enough. Okay. Yeah, and I suppose they did all have like singular elements, like with O'Connor, how we were saying, the animated handling and the heightened color. And I think Kuno Amia did some really interesting- My pal. <laughs> <Your> pal. <laughs> My pal. Did some really interesting things with, I, I can't remember which painting it was, but it was almost like, a counterpoint to an O'Connor painting. It was much darker colours he used, as opposed to O'Connor's really Brush. bright colours. And I yeah. thought that that was something I, I quite liked from Kuno Amiot, because I, I just like the contrast between the two. Yeah, and I think it's, I would describe his 
amates stuff as muted, which is probably gas, because most people would say it's a colour explosion of kaleidoscopes. But like the way he picked his colours was a muted bright tone, I suppose, whereas O'Connor was literally like lashing through the, the, the brightness. Do you know that way? So I think there was a definitely um, a difference between those two in that sense. I think there's a painting in there by, of um, Giacometti and that painting is muted, like you were saying, and I'm almost certain it's by Kuno Amiet, and you can see how, when he went to Panavan, how much his style changed, but like with remaining, some of the darker colours did remain, mm. so I suppose his aesthetic is more darker and less involved in these bright colours, but like you said earlier, you know, he had to go back to Switzerland, and so perhaps he wasn't in the greatest headspace. Yeah. And that came through in his colours. I would have supported him. <laughs> As his pal. As his pal, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there is also Van Gogh in, this, in the exhibition. And what, how did you feel about the similarities between Van Gogh and O'Connor? Something which I personally didn't realise was a thing before I saw this exhibition, which I thought was really, I suppose, enlightening to discover. That yeah, time. for sure. I think, I suppose, when you, familiarity breeds joy almost, because you can be like, oh, I know that one. And it's like, you know the style of it and whatever. So to see then how, at the same time, there was so many other people, especially an Irish person, and that's the familiarity again, doing similar stuff. It's kind of like, oh wow, he was doing similar to Van Gogh, and, and it's it's all marketing, I suppose, if you break it down, um, that we know Van Gogh, because mm -hmm. is his work better or worse than the others um, from the era, from the area, from the, from the gang? Um, and that's a, a bigger question that we were having of like, who decides what's better? Is it all? Who gets a bigger platform? Mm -hmm. Who sells more? And like, especially with the likes of like Damien Hirst would be the a main example of that. Is is it hype and, and uh, marketing that makes art good, or is it actually what it is? And I think when you boil that down, that's a whole interesting conversation that I love having. What do you think? <laughs> no, I think that's interesting because I think you need hype and marketing as much as you need creativity. And you see that nowadays with in fashion, you can have these really great designers, but if there's no hype in marketing, their career won't Project. go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have absolute shite hawks selling crap. Exactly. And they have the hype and... The worst. <laughs> but ultimately it does come back to sales. Because if they don't get any sales, they can't make the next painting. And then that boils down to a whole discussion of what is success. Is success making money or is it making something that you loved making and that people love? And like with Kuno Amiet, he went back to Switzerland, and but we still appreciate his work now. And I think that shows that, that maybe answers your question that even though he did, you could say So he didn't, yeah, at the time for sure. He still succeeded in terms that his paintings are still so enjoyed today. Is success just notoriety or is it where do we draw the line of what success is for art I suppose and who decides that so you've got all your different and then art from a child has a value to a parent 
mm-hmm. when it could be shit. Whereas then you've got something that's worth fortunes. Um, like the diamond skull from Damien Hurst is that stunning or whatever. So it's that's who's willing to pay for it, who's willing to look at it, who's willing to be part of it and who's willing to emotionally connect with it. So. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I hope when people look at this, this exhibition that they are willing to challenge what they think is good and what is bad. Like you and I looked through the exhibition and there were some pieces that we looked at and we just thought, not that great, <laughs> to be honest, um, but that's subjective. That's subjective. And that's what I love about art so much and that's what makes me passionate about it is because it is subjective and it's not up for anyone to decide what you like or what is good. I think the whole point of it is that we all go on our journey of uh, exploration, dis- exploration <laughs> discovery and love. I, and I do. <laughs> Peace. You're a hippie. I'm a hippie. Yeah. At heart. <laughs> um, I do hope when people see the exhibition that they are willing to challenge what they think is good and bad and hopefully they come up with and hopefully they answer their own questions whether they think look at it and think oh it's all the same were these people copying or were they inspired or I think it's important for people to decide and to come be to a, a critic to be a critic exactly <laughs> um, like I, I didn't feel afraid to have an opinion. I feel sometimes when I see art exhibitions that it's almost the opinion is forced on you, that you think it's good because you're told it's good, as opposed to looking at it and saying, no, this is actually crap. Not that anything in this exhibition was crap, but it was... It's marketing and hype. Marketing and hype. I thought that was really interesting, the way that they could, these people were inspired by each other. And it turns out that uh, Roderick O'Connor was Van Gogh's hype girl in the Pontavan region, <laughs> I believe. His, uh, his gang, I guess, and yeah. supporting each other, which is comes but back even, to what even, we said a, about even after he died, he kept hyping them up and on and on. So I think again, it goes back to who's your hype girl? Who's your hype girl? Who's your exactly. hype girl? <laughs> like for Van Gogh, it was his brother. Yeah, he he ran the gallery and pushed Van Gogh's work and it's probably why we still know it today. Yeah. Which comes back to what, like what we said, how some people do drop off the face of the earth and we never hear about them again, but... And which could have happened with O'Connor. Well, maybe the time is now. Maybe the time they'll is now. They'll listen to this podcast. And they'll be convinced. And Roderick O'Connor is now... The most famous artist. In Ireland. Because we said so. The end. <laughs> <laughs> do you think we're finished? <laughs>